All right, well, good morning again. So about a year and a half ago, uh, our family, we were hanging out with some friends uh, on, uh, just out in our driveway, sitting in some lawn chairs, hanging out, catching up, and I had to slip away for a, a few moments, run a quick errand, and from what I was told later, at some point while they, the families were hanging out on our driveway, uh, one of the kids got up to go use our restroom, and when she came out, she didn't close our front door all the way. So as they were sitting and chatting, they all watched as a possum walked into our house. A smaller possum, but nonetheless, a possum walked into our house. So when I got home, everybody was in our house frantically searching for this possum, right? Going through every single room, every corner, under every couch, bed, and for an entire hour, couldn't find anything. Right, at some point, we almost you know, had to force ourselves to believe that, you know what, it probably left our house at some point while we were looking, maybe it left, right? It had to leave. It can't be, it can't be in here. So our friends went home, and we you know, closed the door, and we just, you know, it's, it's not in here. It's got to be gone, and you know, eventually began to wind down, started to get ready for bed. Amber goes into Katie's room to close the blinds, and there it is. <laughs> in the middle of the room, just looking at her. So she runs out, and guess who has to go in? <laughs> so I go in, and, and I got gloves on. Got a five-gallon Home Depot bucket and a towel. And I enter the room, and it's, it's like it's me and him. And I am terrified. <laughs> Mind you, I don't like killing spiders. I don't like bugs. And it's wedged itself in the corner, and it's kind of bat looking at me. And I'm saying everything I could possibly say to myself to just psych me up. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Right? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you. Like, you better man up. You better put your big boy pants on. Like, if you don't do this, like, you're going to be here all night. Right? No one is resting until this thing is out of our house. And what felt like an eternity, it's probably like seconds or minutes, eventually I reach down, I, I grab it by its tail. I may or may not have screamed. <laughs> I place it in the bucket. I cover the towel. I race out of the house into our street, not like the intersection, but just, you know, our street. I, I release it, and I run back, shut the door, lock it, right? And we can finally, like, relax, right? It's gone. Now, completely unrelated, about a year and a half ago as well, uh, one day, I, I walk into our, our bathroom, our kids' bathroom, and I notice some water damage on the side of our vanity. And I can tell that it's a place moisture had been gathering for some time. And I just didn't want to think about it or, or, or deal with it at the time. And I just, you know, maybe it was just one of our kids in the shower, you know, getting everything wet. And over time, I began to notice that it got worse. Eventually, it would plateau, um, but I just didn't have, like, the bandwidth to want to think about it, to address it. I just thought, well, I'm not in the bathroom that long, that much time of the day. Like, it will be fine. And I just let it sit for about a year, a year and a half. Well, a few weeks ago, 
we had a plumber come by, and it was for this free inspection to check our water heater, and I contemplated whether I should ask him to take a look at this spot. But he was in our house. I said, oh, what the heck? I might as well just ask. So he comes, he takes a look, and he says, it's hard for me to say there's only one way to find out. I got to go through the wall. I got to cut open the vanity. Cut opens the wall, looks under the vanity, and there's mold. And it's it's spread behind our, our vanity into the walls, and they call a remediation team, right? The remediation team comes, they confirm it's mold, and they give us a quote for the removal, right? And I look at the price, and it's almost the same price as a new bike, so it breaks my, it breaks my heart, right? I'm torn, and, and part of me is thinking, like, can't I just spray some bleach, call it a day, right? But we know how dangerous mold can be, how harmful. It's our kid's bathroom, so to have it removed by professionals, proper equipment to make sure all of it's gone, to make sure it doesn't come back, right? It, it was worth it to have it completely removed for our health for our safety. Now, it's safe to say that there's something special, something sacred about that place where we call home, right? Home is, is our dwelling place, right? It's that place where we, we rest, we recharge, we enjoy, right? We enjoy family, we enjoy friends, we enjoy time alone. It's that place where hopefully where we feel safe, Right? It's that place where we can be who we are just uh, the way we are. Right? It's what we, we use to, to gather, to fellowship, to, to bless others. And because there's something sacred about our home, right, we do everything we can to take care of it. Right? And part of caring for it is to, to guard it, to protect it, right? to remove things that are terrifying, frightening, to remove things that are dangerous harmful to prevent those things from from entering right it's why we have things like doors and windows and locks and alarm systems why we take out trash why we have drain pipes air filters water filters right to enjoy all of the good we have to remove the bad prevent the bad from entering well this morning as we continue our way through the book of genesis or the early chapters of genesis we're going to see both the privilege and the responsibility that we've been given to care, to care for that sacred space where God dwells with us. We're going to see the the power and the authority that we've been given to guard, to protect our relationship with Him. So picking up in Genesis chapter 2, begin with verse 4. Uh, We're going to get a zoomed-in account on the man and the woman, Adam and and Eve. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we're told that amongst all of creation is this, is this area called Eden. Eden means delight. It carries this, this idea of, of a paradise. And within Eden, God creates a garden. Now, when we think about gardens, think large botanical garden, large park rather than your backyard variety garden, right? This is a garden that is, is large enough to have all kinds of trees, right? All kinds of plants and trees, all kinds of fruits and vegetables that look good, taste good, that are good for you, which suggests that vegetables tasted good before the fall, right? Maybe it tasted like donuts, a little bit of glaze on it. And in the center of this garden were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we'll revisit. Continuing on in verse 10, it says, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good, aromatic resin, and onyx are also there. So here we get this visual illustration, this picture, this tangible picture of what the garden represented, right? One, whether within the garden or nearby, is a land rich in gold, rich in precious stones and jewels, telling us that this is a land rich in resources, beauty, wonder. And we're told that from somewhere in Eden, we don't know where, but somewhere in Eden, a river flows into the garden. And this river provides water and life for the entire garden, irrigating and saturating. And from the garden, this one river breaks up into four separate rivers, presumably now going out from in all different directions. Right? Water being the source of life. Right? Life pouring into the garden from a single source and flowing out of the garden in all separate directions. And then in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And we're going to spend some time looking at this idea of to work and to take care of. Now, this word that is translated as work, uh, it can be technically used to refer to certain tasks, certain chores, such as gardening, such as, as farming. But in the Old Testament, whenever this Hebrew word is used without a specific direct object after, like, working the garden, but this idea of just to work, right, it carries the meaning of religious service. It carries the idea of doing something for God, serving Him as an act of, of worship, right, to, to do things in such a way that honors Him glorifies him, as we saw last week, images him, reflects him, demonstrates his beauty, his splendor to subdue and rule in such a way, spreads his beauty, his wonder, his blessings uh, to others, right? And thus, this idea of work is less about the actual task, and it's more about motive. It's more about one's purpose. Right, to, to live in such a way that we participate with Him in the things that bring Him joy, blessing others, empowering others to thrive and to flourish. Now, we don't know all this entails. We know that part of it was, was multiplying, right? Making babies, raising kids, teaching them to subdue and rule in such a way that spread His beauty, 
his wonder, his blessing. Part of it uh, could have been gardening, farming, right? planting more trees, cultivating the soils, irrigating the land, producing more food for more people, more blessings. Now, this word that is translated as to take care of, to care of, it carries the meaning of, of guarding and protecting. And the obvious question here is to guard and protect from what? Right? Sin had yet not yet entered the picture. So what are Adam and Eve, what are humanity called to guard and protect? Well, we get a clue in the very next verse, verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Right? So amongst all of creation is Eden. Within Eden is a garden. And at the very center of this garden are two trees, right? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And most scholars believe that this tree of life, it wasn't a tree that granted immortality, right? You eat it once and you, you live forever, but it was a tree that extended life. That as long as you kept eating from this tree, you would continue to live. And God's one instruction to Adam, to humanity, was you can eat from any of the trees. All you want, including the tree of life, but you just can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of it, you will surely die. And what we see here, right, is that God has not only entrusted humanity with creation, with plants and trees and animals. But he's also entrusted them with their relationship with him. That he has given them the power and the authority to not only subdue and rule all of creation, but he's given them the power and the authority to some extent to have a say on the kind of relationship that they would have with God, to ultimately dictate the trajectory of that relationship, that every day they got to choose whether they would continue to do life with God, to live in alignment with His plans, His purposes, His order, or whether they would opt out and pursue a life without Him. And thus to guard and protect the garden was to guard and protect that sacred space where God would meet with them. That space where God would literally walk and talk with them, go on hikes, sit around and chat. And to guard that sacred space was to ultimately guard the relationship, to protect the relationship that they had with God, with, that all of humanity would have with God, to do everything in their power to make sure they didn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and to protect themselves from anything that would tempt them to, that could jeopardize that. Now, we don't, we don't know what, that, what this entails, right? Part of it could have been like, you know, don't have picnics under the knowledge tree on an empty stomach. You know, don't hang around with the serpent 24-7. Be proactive, be diligent in, in working, 
multiply, work in the land. Now, we don't know all that it entails, but in retrospect, we can see all that was at stake, right? How Adam and eventually Eve cared for that sacred space would not only significantly impact their life, but it would significantly impact the lives of many, many others. Now, for ancient Israel, right, who is hearing this creation account, hearing of God creating a garden, placing humanity to work and to take care of, the first thing that would have came to mind for them would not have been gardener or farmer, but it would have been priest. Because the words to work and to take care of were words that were used to describe a priestly role, priestly responsibilities. And thus, if Adam and Eve would bring to mind the role of a priest, then the garden would have brought to mind the tabernacle, eventually the temple, right? The tabernacle was Israel's sacred space where God would meet with them. It was his dwelling place where God would literally walk and talk with them. That whenever they moved, they would pack up the tabernacle and the tabernacle would walk with them. Whenever they stopped, they would set up the tabernacle and it would sit at the very center of their camp, right? That in the middle of this wilderness, this desert, a land that was inhospitable, wild and waste, God created a dwelling space, a dwelling place where he would dwell with his people, that there would be a courtyard and within the courtyard would be the tabernacle. And within the tabernacle were two rooms. First room called the holy place. Second room, separated by a curtain, was called the most holy place. Holy of holies. And within this room was the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark of the Covenant were the two tablets. God's command to his people, a constant reminder of the choice they had before them. Choosing to do life with God, by trusting him and obeying him, or life without God. Distrust. Disobey. And only the priests were allowed to enter the tabernacle. And only the high priest, once a year, could go into the most holy place. And as a priest, that would have been an immense privilege, but also a huge responsibility. Right on one hand, it's the privilege of being able to enter God's presence being able to to speak to God, hear from God, receive from Him, and come out of that and to declare God, communicate who God is, to communicate His desires, to reflect His character. But with this privilege was also this responsibility that it was on the priest to ensure that God was worshipped, that He was praised, that He was their God that the tabernacle would be kept in order, that instructions were were followed, that nothing would get in the way of their ability to, to worship God, to serve God, to participate with God, that nothing would hinder their ability to experience God, receive from God, be blessed by God. How they cared for this sacred space would not only significantly impact them, but it would significantly impact the lives of many, many others. 
Now in Exodus 19, God says to Israel through Moses, says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, what God is telling Israel is is that the the role of the priest was a, a visual, tangible expression of God's desire for each and every one of them. And the creation account would simply confirm this and verify this. That God's desire from the very beginning was not to limit his presence to one tent. It was not to limit access to just a select few. But God's desire for his people from the very beginning was that each and every person could experience his presence. Every single person could walk with him and talk with him and receive from him and participate with him. And that this journey that he was leading them on was an invitation for them to get to know him, to trust him, to experience him. But with this privilege, this blessing was also a responsibility. That every single one of them had a a role to play. To ultimately decide whether they would choose to do life with God by obeying him or to do life without God by disobeying him. Adam and Eve had the trees they had to decide on every single day. Israel had the command. And the story of creation would have been a warning. That there were severe consequences if they chose to opt out and to do life without God. Now for us today... For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that uh, Jesus is our great high priest. Right? Jesus being fully God, fully man, stands on our behalf, mediates, and offers himself as our final, ultimate sacrifice. Right? He goes to the cross, pays for our sins, washes us clean, declares us holy and righteous before God, elevates us to the status as sons and daughters, makes us worthy to be in His presence so that the Spirit of God can come and make His dwelling place within us. That the sacred space where we get to meet with God Walk with him and talk with him is within each and every one of us. That's why 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul refers to our bodies as God's temple, his dwelling place. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, right, see if this sounds familiar, but you as believers, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
that we are God's chosen people. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That we've received his mercy. We've been forgiven. We've been washed clean. We've been, been adopted as sons and daughters. We've been made worthy of his presence. And God dwells in each and every one of us. Right? That we don't have to go anywhere specific. We don't have to be in a certain building to be in his presence. But rather we can be with him anytime, any day because he's with us. He will never leave us, never forsake us. At any time, in any place, we could talk with him and, and walk with him and hear from him and receive from him. That is the blessing that we get to experience every moment of every day because of, of who Jesus is, what he's done for us. But with this blessing, right, is also a responsibility that we've been called and saved for a purpose. Second half of verse 9, it says that, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That God has saved us for the purpose of declaring, demonstrating, reflecting, communicating all of the reasons God is worthy of praise. And when I was coaching uh, Katie's basketball team over at the Norwalk Center, we, for about a year or two, uh, we would share the gym with another team. And the other team, uh, there was a, a guy named Joe who would coach their team, and he was a fellow believer. He knew I was a pastor, and every time, you know, I'd see him, you know, he'd walk over, and real nice guy, you know, just thank you for doing the Lord's work. You know, and he meant well, and he meant to encourage me, but I'd always respond back like, we're all called to do the Lord's work. We're all doing the Lord's work that each and every believer has been saved for the purpose of doing the Lord's work. Right? That just like Adam and Eve, just like the Old Testament priests, we are called to demonstrate to the world who God is and what He's like. That everything we say Everything we do, every choice, every decision, who we are, what we are like, our personality, our temperament, it communicates a message about who God is. And the challenge for us is to live in such a way where we communicate a message that is accurate to who God really is and to what He is really like. Verse 11, continuing on, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. Or verse 12, he says, Live such good lives. Live in such a way where even though there may be people who disagree with us, even though there may be people who hate and despise what we believe, they're going to see our good deeds. They may even receive our good deeds, benefit from our good deeds, and by God's grace, supernaturally begin to see God in a positive light. By God's grace, turn to Him, trust Him, love Him, 
Commit to doing life with Him, under Him, for Him. And the challenge for us, the call we see in verse 11, it says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. That there is something that is constantly waging war on that sacred space where we meet with God. And that is every thought, every desire, every belief that is not in perfect alignment with who God is and what He's like. And to guard that, to protect that, is to do everything in our power to ensure that nothing gets in the way. Nothing hinders our ability to experience God, hear from God, receive from God, participate with God. That we guard ourselves, that we exercise our power and authority to subdue and rule even our own soul. To ensure that nothing gets in there that may deceive us, distract us, discourage us, or even dissuade us. How we care for our souls, how we care for our hearts and our minds is going to affect and impact not only our lives, but the lives of many, many others. It's going to affect how our kids see God, how our friends see God. It's going to affect how our teammates see God, our coworkers see God, our community sees God. Ultimately, it's going to affect how the world sees God. I've shared before that, you know, growing, like, growing up as a kid, one of you know, my passions, my hobbies was, was video games. Loved playing video games, and it went into my high school years, college years, adulthood years. And, you know, even when I got married and had kids, it didn't phase me at all. Because I could just, like, hold Carly in one arm and just <laughs> play with the other. No problem at all. Well, eventually, you know, she got mobile, and then I would be playing and, you know, rack up a triple-double with LeBron James and NBA 2K, and Carly would see that flashing light on the console. And she would shut it off. It's like, oh. But then I wisened up. I matured. And I realized that I would just play after she went to sleep. After she'd go to sleep, I'd bust it out and, and I would play video games. But I, what I began to notice, though, was that over time, I began to feel myself wanting my kids to go to sleep so I could play video games. And whenever they wouldn't go to sleep, it would frustrate me. It would kind of annoy me because I couldn't play my, my video games. And then one day, right, it, it convicted me that I was allowing video games to hinder my ability to just be present with my kids, to enjoy my kids, to be happy when they stayed up late, to have extra time with them. So even though video games aren't bad in and of themselves, I could see how it was hindering the relationship, so I had to just pack it up, box it away, give it away. Until they were in elementary and I could pull it back out. <laughs> so the question we need to ask ourselves, are there things in our life that get in the way of our relationship with God? Are there things that hinder our ability to just be with Him, experience Him, hear from Him, participate with Him, 
reflect him to those around us. It could be anything. It could be everything. Maybe there are certain goals and ambitions that if we're honest with ourselves, just things we want in this life that are just more pressing, more urgent, more important than our relationship with God. Maybe it's certain fears, certain worries, fear of failure, fear of loss, fear of public opinion, what other people, how they see us, what they think about us. Maybe it's certain doubts, unsure whether God actually loves us, whether he's forgiven us, whether he's truly with us and for us, whether he could actually use us for his plans, his purposes. Maybe it's certain relationships, uh, people who are just hard to love, people we haven't forgiven yet that just hinder our ability to experience God's peace, His comfort, His his joy. Maybe it's just things that we watch, things we read, things we listen to, that if we're honest with ourselves, it just leads us away from God, distracts us, discourages us, deceives us. Maybe it's the lack of filling our, our hearts and our minds with the good stuff, spending time with God in prayer, in community, reading His Word, just being reminded of who He is and and what he's like. And the challenge for us is is not to be perfect, but to be able to to bring those things before the Lord, to be able to repent of those things, confess those things, to invite God to address those things. Maybe it's just saying to him, God, there are things in my life There are certain goals that I have. There are certain fears that I have. There are certain doubts that are hindering my relationship with you. Fix these things. I give these things to you. Maybe it's sharing it with one another, asking for prayer, bringing those things in the light. Remember a few weeks ago, one of our college young adults was hanging out after service and just wanted to talk. And when we met up, he just shared something that he was struggling with, something that was getting in the way with his relationship with God. He's like, I just wanted to tell you. I just needed to share that with somebody. And I was just so humbled and so encouraged that he would take a step of faith, a struggle that was in the dark and just bring it in the light. And he'd say, here, I just need to share it with you. Later this morning, we're going to take communion together. And in communion is us as the body remembering and proclaiming what Jesus has done for us and what he will do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, everybody ought to examine themselves before taking of the bread and drinking from the cup. And to examine ourselves doesn't mean we've got to be perfect before we take communion, but to, to ask ourselves the question, how are we doing in our relationship with the Lord? Are there things that are getting in the way? Are there things that are hindering our ability to just be with him and enjoy him, to love him and and trust him and to bring those things to him? So I'm going to close our time this morning. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to move into a time of reflection, time of worship where we can sit before God and to examine ourselves before him to invite him to speak, for the spirit to move, and to encourage you that during that time, to bring those things to him, 
in the quietness of your heart to ask for prayer, whether it's Pastor A, Pastor Don in the back, Brandon, myself up front, to share with someone after service, however God leads you to address those things. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll move into worship.